Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Digital Twin Fan Club podcast. Today, uh, I'm joined by Vicky Reynolds. Say hi, Vicky. Hi, Vicky. And we're joined by James Palat of GPE. Hello. Today, we're here to talk to James uh, because I believe at GPE you have developed a series of digital twins for various reasons. Um, And so we'd like to hear about that. And I guess the first place to start is what exactly is a digital twin to you and to GPE? What's your definition? Uh, A digital twin is a virtual replica of a physical asset that monitors performance in real time. I didn't bring my marking sheet with me, but I think you get four marks. I think I think that's uh, yeah, that that's in line with everything that that has been said before. So that's cool. We're on the right track. Um, <laughs> I didn't realise I was being marked. <laughs> you were being, yes, yes. There is. A, this is actually a, a very roundabout way of uh, doing. I just listen to assessment. everyone else, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So um, was that definition pretty solidly understood and accepted throughout GP? Was the conversation, we should make a digital twin for these reasons, off we go? Or was there more of a process around the decision to take the leap? So, um, so there wasn't a, there's never been any business plan or any decision that says, let's build a digital twin. Mm-hmm. So let's, uh, let's start off with that one. Uh, in fact, probably before we built one, uh, it was it was probably hard for people to gather what it was, right? So in its abstract form, it doesn't really make any sense to anybody. Hence, I guess, why there's lots of different interpretations of what it means. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, just let me sort of take it back a step. So I'm Director of Innovation at GPA. It's my role to define uh, our, our innovation strategy and make sure it's implemented. And if you look at innovation in its purest sense, it is trying to solve problems. So what is the problem that the digital twin is trying to solve? Uh, And the problem that we have uh, is twofold. One is is that we've uh, made a commitment uh, as a business, quite rightly, to be net zero carbon by 2130. And if that, what that really means is, is that you have to reduce all of your embodied carbon and all of your operational energy down to the point at which you can then offset. So we have an awful lot of work to do between now and 2030 to make sure that we've got those buildings uh, as efficiently optimized as we could. So that's that really is the problem that we're trying to solve, right? So you think then, well, how do I optimize the performance of my building? Uh, what's, what way do I do it? And obviously buildings have had building management systems for years, they've had lots of different issues. And for many years, it's driven me mad about <laughs> the total lack of this dialogue between the people who build buildings and the people who operate buildings. Yeah. Uh, and it's that crucial piece of missing understanding that I think has held us back along the way. I'm, re- I'm really excited to hear that this actually came from somewhere other than we should do this, it sounds cool. Um, oh, yeah. No. <laughs> and, and especially with it being linked to um, carbon. And yeah. sustainability because yeah. I think that's a genuine problem and it's something that um, reporting of in history has been terrible it's been you know these are our targets did we hit them 
we don't know, let's create new ones. Yeah. Um, and so the fact that I'm guessing with the twins that you've got, you've created this feedback loop that then helps you to, to understand. Yeah, that's what we're trying to do. So um, I've been at GPE for 11 and a half years. Um, I wish I was innovating for 11 and a half years. I think in, in lots of ways, I think I've tried to be innovative, but not innovating. Uh, and I, so up until four and a half years ago, I was director of projects. So I joined in uh, March 2011, very handily, uh, about four weeks after Paul Morell issued the UK government BIM mandate. So I joined a, a team where we were about to go on our largest development program we've ever done. Uh, the government had just launched the BIM mandate and I, from my previous employer, I'd seen uh, a lot of digital models um, being used and I could I could see why trade contractors were using but I couldn't understand why the whole industry wasn't. And it reali- when you realise that Revit hadn't made Revit MEP, that was the missing piece of the puzzle, right? Yeah. So all of a sudden, I've joined GPE, uh, there's a UK government BIM mandate and I firmly believe that there is a way for BIM to smooth out some of the inefficiencies of the construction process and we did it and we've you know we've delivered we've delivered uh, 13 developments with you know our BIM mandate and that we had our EIRs written back in 2012 and everything was going fine but I always got frustrated that come completion nothing really happened with that that information or that model right yeah, so often things just get thrown over the fence. Yeah, and and partly because I think people didn't understand what they were going to receive, and partly there wasn't there was a slight lack of um, understanding, I think, about what how to join the dots. And um, on the company that helped us most on the bit on that journey uh, was Rob Charlton and Adam Ward at BIM Technologies. Uh, so they were the first phone call I made because I'd seen them read an interview in a uh, building and the, picked up the phone to them and they've helped us ever since. And the great thing about Adam uh, and Rob is, is that they, they'd answer this challenge. So I spoke at BIM Show Live in 2018, I think, something like that. And I'd just taken the straw and I was sort of using the metaphor of um, Strava, right? So Strava is a app that measures your physical performance. Now I know that if I train properly, I would cycle up a mountain quicker. But Strava makes the the use of data intuitive and helps you formulate a plan to improve. Mm-hmm. And I was my basic question is why isn't there a Strava for construction? Why isn't there a plugin that just allows this to happen? And um, Adam and Rob uh, had cleverly uh, went away to work on it. And and at the same time, with a separate company called Smart Spaces. Um, we were also developing uh, a workplace app uh, to understand how you know to improve our engagement with our customers, and they arrived at a similar logic at the same way, which was connecting the building management system to the backnet to observe and create and connect the, the what was going on in the building to that three D representation, and um, that's how these twins were born. So it wasn't that we wanted to create digital twin is just it was an answer of a question and a challenge if you like to say well, how can I how can I usefully use a bit model that you use during construction in reality excellent a digital twin a successful digital twin really is should be more of like a happy accident almost um, yeah. and you just so you turn around at the end and you go oh look that's we've, we've got a digital twin yeah be, as you've solved your problems um, 
And so it's really interesting to see that in the real world come to force. So was there any pushback from the business in terms of um, cost, changing process, uh, upskilling, um, or, or was it a relatively smooth transition or sales pitch, for want of a better word? The great thing, the great support that I have at GPE um, through Toby's leadership, Toby Courtauld is chief executive. He very, very rarely says no to me. <laughs> that doesn't mean he always says yes. Uh, <laughs> but it's that discipline about defining the problem you're trying to solve. So why are you doing it? Not just are you doing it because of this. Yeah. So and and it was through this. It was through my discussion with Toby back in 2017 that we created the role anyway because I felt like we were sleepwalking into disruption. Um, I'd become pretty jaded with the uh, project world. Uh, yeah. Because mostly because of other clients, I think. I think the the thing that uh, I think most clients are really. Uh, in a position that they shouldn't be in. Um, I don't think that they're educated or wise enough to be a client. Too many people in the construction industry see it as a position of power instead of a position of leadership. Mm-hmm. That's interesting, yeah. I feel like there's a kind of a strong uh, dichotomy between delegating responsibilities and owning the solution. And, and often things fall in the gaps of those. And, yeah. you know, we end up, contracts aren't written to provide solutions they're there to deal with things when they go wrong so if you're managing by contracts then and they're not very good at innovating either no contracts for innovation are pretty poor yes yes as an interface goes yeah they're usually pretty (laughs) awful yeah you're working with the chief executive there to make these important decisions uh and bim was something that um it kind of came from all angles. There were people coming in sideways with software tools. There were people coming in bottom up who were, right. you know, just doing it, making it happen. And they could get a little bit of software signed off, or you know, they could get yeah. a little bit of training time or something like that. Um, but it sounds like really you need the top down and bottom up approach in many yeah. cases to be able to kind of cement this sort of change. For any for any innovation to be successful, you need leadership. You need someone to lead that process, and the process that I would, that always used to frustrate me uh, was that piece of reaching a practical completion. We we did a project uh, through that period of time, uh, Rathbone Square, which was uh, a multi-phase development that was uh, became one of Facebook's offices and uh, a commercial um, block of flats as well, as well. So residential block. And we'd never really done residential before, and it was obvious that loads of stuff could go wrong. So this is when other projects were going badly wrong. They were like two years behind. Contractors were losing loads of money. We learned that actually we shouldn't... uh, The key to success was not to make changes, to hold back on changes and variations, which meant we had to really consider design and work it through. Mm -hmm. Um, But I set out this vision on Rathbone Square, and I used the film The Italian Job as the metaphor. And everyone thinks it's The Italian Job as a successful film. And they, well, got, they got away with it. The except, no, but that's my point. They got away with it and they're celebrating, but they ended up actually not celebrating because they didn't finish the job. Mm-hmm. And that was the vision that I gave to the team. Say, I don't want to be hanging over the end of the cliff at the end of this project. 
we're going to get to Switzerland, which is what's supposed to have happened. Mm -hmm. They were supposed to put the money in the bank and supposed to make a sequel, but they never got around to that. That's a different story. <laughs> but um, so are you actually a super secret Italian job nerd? No, I just, I just, I'm a bit of a film nerd, but I know that that's what the plan to be. But they had to make an alternative ending. Well, they did make a a, a reboot. I'm not sure if that counts. That was not the same thing at all. <laughs> okay, good. I'm glad. They were they were supposed to go on a series of crime capers, which I believe the '60s term was that. Uh, and make a sort of a series of films out of it. Which is interesting because there's a... Uh, <laughs> I'm going to yeah. completely continue the Italian job analogy. You, you can't stop me. Go on then. Um, the, uh, no, the, so they did one job, kind of, yeah. didn't really finish it. And I think in the built environment, there's a lot of... There is a project team, it does a project, and then all of its members disappear go, and then reappear on different projects. And so whatever great things, great innovations you managed on that one project, yeah. you might keep them, but you probably don't. You probably, or you have to work hard to get those innovations back in unless you have some sort of mechanism. I'm kind of trying to make you talk about innovation a lot yeah, yeah, to yeah. get these uh, things embedded into how things are done as normal. Uh, yeah, I don't think, I'm going to slightly push back on that. I think that the metaphor about the project teams coming together with the job is very real and you do lose it but the, if you know that uh, you're doing it to take away the fear of whatever that technology you're trying to bring in is people in real estate have a really hard time imagining this concept that you're talking about so if you talk about BIM most people in the real estate world will say well that works anyway really doesn't you're telling me that you need to coordinate this stuff to make it work they can't really accept that it's not and real estate is the only luxury product in the world that you start making before you know how you're going to finish it yeah mm. it's the easiest way i can describe it to people it sounds nuts but that's what happens it costs millions of pounds but you're committing to something that you don't know how you're going to finish it mm -hmm. but so the point being is that once you show an example of something people feel a lot happier about it so when we showed the digital twin at the Hickman to, to my colleagues, they were really impressed. They go, that is amazing. That's really good. I now get what you've been talking about. So it's quite hard if you haven't got an example of something to show that to thing show happening. Them. I'm really, really keen to know what what was twinned, basically, okay. um, and, and how. So we took the BIM model so we, well, yeah, we. So with um, with Rob and uh, with Adam, they were the BIM coordinators on the project anyway. So they were mm -hmm. pulling together the building. So we had uh, an asset-rich data model, and we agreed. Uh, we'd set aside some money for innovation in that budget to experiment and see where we get to. And this was one of the things that we put some money towards. And um, we agreed that we would connect all of the plant and equipment in the building to the BMS and so that you can virtually connect with any component that's within the building in the twin to see if a fan core unit is operating the way or which any pieces of equipment are operating in any way by clicking on that part of equipment, finding out particularly how that's performing and what it's trying to do, but also zooming out and understanding what's happening in the whole. So it monitors over 15,000 different points within the building. So this started on one project, and yeah. then you started rolling it out. Well, so in true, um, in true innovative style, the way that we so the way we go through a process of um, 
onboarding innovation, doesn't matter what the problem is, we, we'll just sort of go through the same thing, which is a discovery phase. So what's out there? What What is it that's come emerging? So uh, we will, we are currently looking into the metaverse, right? I know people's eyes roll into it, but it's something that will affect our lives at some point in the future. So we need to do some research. We then identify the problem, so we define the problem in the problem statement, and then we source available technology. So we did, uh, we worked with platforms like Unisoo, and we set out, out an RFP, and we uh, got a series of proposals back for a digital twin, so we said we'd like to create a digital twin, and we got four back, uh, and we had proposals from all of them, and pitches from all of them, and we've trialled three different types of twin in three different properties, to understand what worked, what didn't work, what was good, what was bad. And that's how we trial them. And then once we've gone through that trial, then we roll them out. And so it rolls out across the portfolio. That sounds sensible. <laughs> it sounds like you have an innovation strategy. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, it's, it's really exciting to hear, actually, um, a common sense approach to this kind of stuff. Because all too often, it's locking at the beginning. So... This is our solution, and we will we'll invest and invest. And if that doesn't work, we'll make it work. Yeah. And there, there's often adverse attitudes to risk, which then means you know if something goes wrong in this first attempt, we won't even try again. We'll just. Yeah, but that's that's why we go through the trial process. So you yeah. need you need to learn from the trial. You need to set some KPIs to see whether it works or what doesn't work because yeah. it won't completely work at all. Mm -hmm. uh, there's lots of barriers to adoption even at that point that you've got to get through but you need the other the other key part to this is that um this isn't me doing this on my own so uh i do have in my team i have a group of people that uh, may come on to a moment very valuable people that help me manage the process or manage the data that comes from the process but um the key to success at gpe is that we have a series of what we call innovation champions right so these are people in every department who are there uh, to uh, be able to receive this because innovation needs to become business as usual otherwise it is just innovation it doesn't change and doesn't get embedded mm -hmm. uh, and my favorite meeting uh, that we have at GPE is got the glamorous title of Portfolio Sustainability Committee uh, and it is a group of uh, the innovation team the sustainability team and the uh, portfolio and operations team and we come together and we are we review the objective, which is how are we going to reduce our energy consumption, where do we get to? So we're measuring different initiatives. And what that means is, is that we all understand what's going on. We can all measure to see what's happening. And by the time we reach a conclusion about how we want to roll something out, uh, everyone's brought in and adoption happens. Right? It becomes a much more straightforward process to get to. It takes time and it takes a lot longer and people, then people wish it to happen. Often, as an innovator, you are just say, well, why don't you get it? Why can't you just do this? But that's, that's wrong, because I'm not really listening. And you have to listen to what the problems are and check, has, has that solution solved that problem? Has it got us to that point? And then once you get to that point, then you can roll that out. Mm -hmm. So within that team, are there any um, roles that you would consider non-construction oh, yeah, traditional no, yeah what like what additional no one, sorry there's no one from the project team in that no is there not <laughs> there is a development sustainability committee as well yeah but okay but it's not uh they don't 
we we have we have meetings and we get together every now and then, but it's not not totally joined up. So these people that come in, they're, they're nothing to do with the project process. They're the, they're the techies, the, the, the thinkers. The... They're the operators. They're the people that have to operate the portfolio and make sure that we um, do what we say we're going to do. Okay. Why is innovation valued and treated with the respect <coughs> that it sounds like it is? Um, well, it's a key part of our brand. Driving innovation is key in what we do. Um, it's it may we know that if you stand still, your product stands still, it doesn't evolve, right? And all of our customers are facing the same challenge, which is their business uh, has been disrupted um, completely in terms of where and how we can work. Um, but it's going to continue to be disrupted for the rest of this decade, at least. You know, the the, the way that technology will move at pace. Uh, is going to really force us to make sure that we can make space that's worth the commute, frankly, that brings people together, that's there, that um, they know that their business is going to be productive by coming to one of our buildings. It's really interesting to hear about how Rob and Adam were helping you, you know, kind of develop, developing this data-rich asset model. What were some of the interesting uh, tidbits or, or interventions or decisions that you were able to make um, off the off the back of this so I think the, it, the key thing you've got to recognize when you build a digital twin that for the first three years of a building's life it's probably its most vulnerable so we so what happens is, is that I don't believe anyone starts out to really mess up a job and things go wrong no but it does. And we diligently, um, we work with our teams, and we, you know, we actively look at how we commission the building. And we work really hard to make sure that it does, and that it works. But then at that point, then a customer will come in with their fit out team. So somebody else is messing with the building. Uh, and the, the big structural gap in our industry is that the people who design our buildings don't have any feedback from the way it's actually worked. Yeah, yeah. There is a massive disconnect and we need to bring that together, right? So that you can, otherwise there's no improvement. So that they're all designed to a standard uh, because the institutions recognize that standard. They're not really thinking about how you're solving a customer's problem. You're just saying, the guide says, this is what you'll do. So you do, that's what you'll do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, those three years are really vulnerable because we build a building, it takes a year to fit it out, a year for the customer to move in on phases. Then you go through another year of like seasonal change and operational and seeing how the building's actually working. And only then is the building stable enough to really optimize it. So the truth is, I can't answer that question yet. I can't tell you, I can't give you some tidbits yet because we're constantly looking at it and, and measuring it. It's not, we, we come, I'll come back in a couple of years once we've got it there, but it's, you're it's on. Not. You're you're absolutely <laughs> on. It, but it's an. It sounds like you know you're, you're able to get these meetings together where you're you're dealing with facts, and you're not dealing with just opinions. Yeah. You've got you've got real data to push off. Yeah. So and that's the key thing. I think the other fundamental thing that's missing in the industry is a total misunderstanding, total, of what data is and how to measure it, and how to manage it completely and utterly that because it, the, the problem 
you can deploy all kinds of different prop tech solutions, which we've done uh, across the portfolio and in the construction phase, but they're all giving you separate outputs, which are not connected or understood. So unless you do create a central place that you're storing that data and you can visualize it, mm-hmm. it's, it's not pointless because it's still useful, but it's a lot harder to interpret. Yeah. Once you bring all those things together, then you have a solution which will genuinely mean that you make smart decisions as to how you move forward. It's, that's the, the big piece around information and data needing to be relevant yeah. and in a relevant format as well. And I'm keen to hear um, how much of a part you believe that the geometry of the model plays in the digital twins as yeah, that, well. That is a great question. It's probably the bit that I'm, I know you're slightly skeptical about this. I'm still, the jury's still out on it mm-hmm. a little bit for me. It's helpful, but it's not essential. Yeah. It's, and it's most helpful, I guess, for the human beings. Yeah, but even then, if the user interface or the, U, the UX is so poor, mm-hmm. the engineer's never going to get to it, so it doesn't make any difference. Yeah. Right, so you could, you could with a good QR code linked to asset-rich model, mm. walk into a apartment, find, link it to what's happening in real time, yeah. identify the problem and access uh, some of the data that's linked to it and documentation will link to it. You don't need to necessarily see where that is in the digital version of it. Yeah, you don't need to be able to look at it virtually. Yeah, that, that user yeah. experience, like you say, is that yeah. they are there to get the information. And 3D models are, in a way, intended to make these things more intelligible to a wider audience, as yeah. well as to make better buildings, etc. Yeah. It was to make it more intelligible, but it's interesting that you know the 3D model is, is what's in the middle, but there's all these other button clicks and things yeah, around but it. What I wouldn't... what. I wouldn't want to be misinterpreted is that the, the BIM model is extremely useful, it remains extremely useful mm-hmm. for the construction process. So why waste it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. But it's e- like your happy it's supporting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Even if it's supporting yeah. what's there rather than being the the foundation for it or yeah. the, the, the core of the digital twin, um, there's no there's no point discarding it. No, but I, the thing I'm, I guess I'm a bit more optimistic about where this might go to, because you don't know where uh, the world evolves to, right? So there's a good example at the moment. Uh, it seems like Netflix has taken over the world so that everybody watches Formula One, <laughs> uh, which I don't, but I, I gather it's, it's rather popular. Yes. Uh, but um, Cisco are working with McLaren, so they do work on because they, they can 3D print a, a piece of equipment if they need to fix it, mm-hmm. because you're in another part of the world, so you need to fix something. And they can have a virtual meeting, so a few people wearing headsets, looking at the component and understanding what's going on. And that, to me, does sound quite neat, really, if I'm honest. 100%, yeah. And I guess if we then transfer that analogy to something like a listed building or a very old building that's going to be deteriorating over Yeah, or any building, to be honest. I think it's just that point of, if there's something going wrong, how can I fix it? Yeah. And can it can it make it easier for me to fix that thing? Or for uh, a set of engineers to look at performance, understand what's going on it, or to go back to it in time, and, or mm-hmm. for new engineers to look at it. Why does it have to be a one-off thing that someone's going to look at? So... I think that piece of understanding how something happens may come on to the next version of it. And I know lots of people will groan and roll their eyes into a, you know, an augmented version of a digital twin, but who knows? I don't know. 
Well, if it's use, if it solves a problem, then one hundred percent. Like my my big qualm really is that um, a lot of the people who discuss this enthusiastically don't know why. They yeah. can't tell me why it's important yet, and that's the that's the frustration for me in the eye roll rather than <laughs> yeah. the technology itself. But I, I thought that when I was listening to some past episodes, because most of the people that you were talking to were involved on the supply side, not the operational yes. side. Yeah. And I think that's where that frustration is coming from, right? And that makes sense. It feels like there's a, this virtuous cycle that we need to get into because, like you say, the designers of buildings don't get that feedback. And, yeah. and you know, sometimes these manufactured objects within buildings that break or don't work as intended, there's so many things that go into buildings. When people are complaining badly. Mm-hmm. And at that point, you, you, that, you failed really at that point, which is... The customers that unhappy, then you haven't met your objectives. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, in an ideal world, you could be really positive and say, because nothing ever goes wrong with any building ever. Okay. <laughs> that, that, you, you don't need yeah. a feedback loop, but that, that's. I'm clearly, visualizing that world. That's no. clearly nonsense. <laughs> so, is there a plan then for you to take the data that you have and feed it back to your supply chains yeah. and your yeah. designers? Yeah. And will that be. The people who were involved in the project or will it be feeding back to those organizations and will it but basically is it in your is it for your best interest or yeah. is it is it something that you would do to help advance the industry i think there's there's two layers to this i think there's the people who, whose ip who actually designed and supplied something we would probably give them a greater level of detail yeah. about what's happened but for you know the great the great part one of the great things about the sustainability uh, community is that that sense that something has to happen and therefore we have to solve it quicker is there. So the, there is much more of an open-mindedness to sharing because it, it, one person alone isn't going to solve this issue. So to accelerate that point, that's what we're going to get to. I just, I'd, I'd really like to know, actually, was there anything that went wrong was there any mistake that was made that you would probably highlight as a lessons learned for anybody going through the same journey and say you know what avoid this um yeah really think about what data you need and why yeah and how you're going to because you it's our the problem we've made is it's too detailed it's got too much information you have everything and yeah yeah okay and i bet that's expensive as well from a Maintenance and storage perspective. Um, yeah, it can be from a storage perspective. And the truth is, is that I think the key, the key is that you need enough to be able to store it in a data lake uh, to be able to retrieve it when you need it, mm-hmm. and eventually you've got enough machine learning to do it. But don't worry about it too much too soon. We we have this debate a lot actually because I'm I'm always on the side of just solve your exact problems at the beginning. To prove the concept, and then you can expand. Yeah. Whereas, um, like I know Neil sometimes, and I made that example with the the, the bridges, the Staffordshire Bridges CDBB project, where uh, we threw sensors at the problem, mm-hmm. and just to see what it would do. And that was way more sensors than we need than, than it needed. <laughs> but sometimes, you know, you, you might actually get to a point, and I do acknowledge this, where um, a short way down the line, you go. Oh, if only we had that information, mm. then we could, we'd have a better understanding of the problem. Because 
it's the causation, causation correlation yeah. kind of argument as well. So from your perspective as someone who's lived through this, if someone was starting on this journey, would you say, go for a little bit more than you need? Or would you say, find your problem, collect exactly what you need to solve that problem and then expand from there? Yeah, so I, the first thing is define your problem statement, mm-hmm. right? Take a step back, what problem are you trying to solve? Yeah. Then, depending on what that problem is, that should give you uh, a series of ideas that you can then brainstorm and find out a series of solutions to get to them. But in, even going back, all the way back to 2011, the hype was that it was going to solve all of these things all together. Yeah. Uh, I was slightly sceptical at that point that you could do too much at once. So get a few things, do them really well, mm-hmm. exceptionally well, and then ask people, have people ask for more because it's better to scale up than it is to... Have to dismantle or just because you get to disappointment because yeah. the people with a fixed mindset will say see it didn't work that, yeah. that was a waste of time wasn't it yeah mm-hmm. um, and that doesn't that's not going to do anybody any good and there's so much noise in the industry as well at yeah. the moment there's so much there's so many innovations and I'm putting that in air quotes and technology that's being thrown at people all the time and they're spending a lot of money and a lot of resource is going into this yeah and if you cannot see objective um, benefits, that's when people start to lose all hope and interest in that phrase, you know, oh, we're going to innovate and everyone's eyes roll and then, um, and and anybody with boots on the ground sort of says, well, we we don't need this, it costs a lot of money, we can't afford to do it, Uh, especially when the margins are small as well. Sure. But I think that the way to look at it is not necessarily that it's, I don't believe that providing a digital twin is that's expensive. In fact, I don't really think it's, it shouldn't be too expensive at all as a, as a marginal project cost. And the fact that you, you've got a very good bin model in the first place will save you money in the outcome anyway. Mm-hmm. So you, I could argue it would pay for itself. And then if you took into account and operational savings, it would definitely pay for itself. So it's, why wouldn't you do it? And when you say a really good bin model, do you mean an asset rich? Um, asset information rich bin model yeah um, rather than beautifully detailed geometry like um, yeah I don't yeah you're, although I sound like I'm really technical and I've done this I don't fully understand all that stuff so when it yeah. comes to but so I think the geometry part it doesn't have to look good what it means the level of detail is such that the trade contractors have contributed towards it so a good bin model in my eyes is someone that 30 or 40 different companies have contributed towards mm-hmm. at the right stage during the design and construction process. Yeah. I think that's the key, is that the lack of inclusivity in decision-making at the right times of contributing to the data that's being developed. Yeah. That's really where the gaps are, like, you know, between capital and operational, between technical, sure. you know, all these different facets. So I think uh, inclusivity uh, and bringing people together to make proper decisions is, is where we need to where we need to head and thank you for being so uh, inspirational today with not just the digital twin uh, work that you develop but the system behind it. I think the system behind it is something that um, a lot of people could learn from um, so that we can um, buy these sorts of very specific issues. You know, we're, we're talking about net zero, sustainability issues, these things that are really, really important, things that are actual problems that we can actually do something about. Yeah should really focus and sharpen people's minds when they, when they come to think about their own digital twins.
Absolutely. Thank you so much, James. It's no been problem. a pleasure chatting to you and um, really informative. I definitely learned some stuff. So, yeah, thank you Good. very much. All right. Great. Thank you. Thanks very much for listening to the Digital Twin Fan Club podcast. Please do come and check us out on soundcloud.com or wherever it is you get your podcasts from. We're also all over Twitter and LinkedIn, and we look forward to talking to you again soon.